This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about everything in print. It's Stuart in L.A. here to talk to you about Die Hard 2, or at least the book that inspired it, 58 Minutes, written by Walter Wager, who, you probably note, is not Roderick Thorpe, the author of The Detective and Nothing Lasts Forever, the other two novels we've covered that were formative in creating Die Hard. And let me be clear, Wager was not writing a sequel to Nothing Lasts Forever. He did not see Die Hard and say, I'm going to write that sequel. Walter Wager was a successful, best-selling novelist who had already had books of his adapted into movies, most notably the political thriller Telephone, starring Charles Bronson. That was his book. In 1987, Fox optioned this book. He had no idea that it was fated to become the Bruce Willis Die Hard 2 action movie. This is a standalone, self-contained story that Hollywood screenwriters did some nips and tucks on so that it could fit within the movie universe. But it is not born of that universe or aspiring to be in that universe. And that kind of makes it unique. I don't think we've ever seen that here at Books and Nachos before. It's a common practice in Hollywood. But normally when we deal with a book adaptation of a movie we're watching, like we are over at our sister podcast, NowPlayingPodcast.com, The author at least knows that it's going to end up to be the finished product that it is. But no, this is written in 1987, one year before Die Hard, six years after Nothing Lasts Forever. Remarkably similar to that book in some ways, but not in any way connected. They do have a similar writing style. This is about the same length. They're both stories about German terrorists trying to attack America and a New York cop intervening. They're both set around the Christmas holiday. 58 Minutes is actually set on December 21st, and it's got a really compressed timeline, even more compressed than Nothing Lasts Forever. It's only a few hours. It starts around 5 p.m. and ends around 10 p.m. So you got five hours of really taut adventure. The main character, again, not Joe Leland, not John McClane. On the page, he's called Frank Malone. He's the youngest New York police captain that's ever been. He's kind of a generic character. Honestly, it would be easy for screenwriters to manipulate him into Arnold or Bruce Willis or Stallone or whoever they need him to be because he's just kind of generic action guy that's had this perfect life. He's a former football star. He went to Harvard. He's a crack marksman. He's all versed on terrorism. He's smarter than anybody else. The first scene that we see of him. He's taking on carjackers that have wrongly targeted him, and he actually shows the wisdom on how to deal with them and takes pity on them, keeps them alive when other people might have killed them for what they're doing. He's an invincible, handsome Superman and an obvious hero for this story that, yes, would become Bruce Willis, John McClane. And like nothing lasts forever, he has a daughter that's in L.A. Only this time, it's little Karen. His wife has left him, moved to Santa Barbara. He hasn't seen his daughter for nearly a year, and she's gotten onto a flight from TWA coming out to JFK Airport to see him for the Christmas holiday. And 15 minutes before she lands, JFK Airport is besieged by a complicated, intricate terrorist plot that turns airlines in the sky into hostages. 
This is really what they took for Die Hard 2. They liked the premise of this. If Die Hard 1 was about terrorists taking over a skyscraper in L.A., then yes, Die Hard 2 can be about terrorists taking over a airport during a blizzard where conditions are not such that the people on the ground or in the air can properly respond and are really held prisoner if the bad guys get a hold of the power in the communication, which is what happens. It's pretty similar to the Rennie Harlan film in the setup. Our main bad guy is named Willie Staub. He's German. He's in his hotel room watching the weather reports at the start of this. It's a super blizzard that's going to close a lot of airports in the surrounding area. JFK is big enough to stay open. They don't know that their transmissions are about to be jammed and that Willie Staub has coerced the cooperation of tons of little terrorist organizations throughout the world that don't normally work together to all combine their efforts for this really intricate plot to get their people out of jail. There are seven political prisoners being held in the New York area. They want a plane, gassed up, and ready to take those people out in 58 minutes, or they're comfortable letting these planes, with no recourse to go anywhere else, go crashing onto the ground. But of course, Willie Staub wasn't planning on Frank Malone being there. He shouldn't have. There's a lot of serendipitous coincidences that are happening that are helping him here. I mean, it just so happens that there's this superstorm. It just so happens that there's this man there at this time. There's all kinds of really implausible, unbelievable contrivances to make this plot happen and then to have its undoing. But no one's calling this great literature. This is a potboiler plot that they're sticking into an action movie sequel. I'm just trying to enjoy it as something that I might read on an airline when I'm flying across the country. Pass the time, keep me in suspense, a page turner as they call it. I know that this is not going to be great literature. Indeed, it is not. I'm hoping that they can translate the claustrophobia and the excitement that Roderick Thorpe did in Nothing Lasts Forever. I'm hoping to see some of that vibe here at the JFK airport as Frank Malone gets wind of what's going on, makes friends and enemies with the airport security, and tries his best to get his child safely to the ground. Now, I said when I read Nothing Lasts Forever, it felt very, very similar to Die Hard, that it was almost a direct translation and that it read like an action movie on the page. That's not true here for 58 minutes. I'd actually say the inspiration for this is Alex Haley's airport. You have to go all the way back to the beginning of the 70s, but this was a whole genre that started with this very popular novel about airline disaster. And they made many, many movies and sequels inspired of it, even spoofs. If you ever heard of the movie Airplane, it was a satire in 1980 of all of these airline disaster movies and books that had been written in the 70s. 58 Minutes feels like an 80s redo of that. There's almost no action, per se. There's very little for Frank Malone to do other than to bark orders on the phone and talk to people and await and see what's going to happen. All of the action scenes in Die Hard 2 were contrived by the screenwriters. There is no real big fights or explosions or any of that until really the final pages of the novel. Again, 
the inspiration really seems to be disaster. Let's see all of these different assortments of personalities and people and see how they handle a crisis. We become familiar with passengers on five different planes that are being held up in the air as Willie Staub and his terrorists await the delivery of their political prisoners. That TWA flight, of course, has Frank Malone's daughter on it. It also has a shady doctor who's trying to get a kidney in for a transplant. The captain is having indigestion. We'll find out that he's having a heart attack. Lots of melodrama, lots of plots. We'll move around to other planes as well. After the pilot has a heart attack, he crashes into a Japanese airline, killing those people. Their neighbors in the sky include a Concorde that has a very important son of a Middle Eastern king. There's a drug sting going on that coming from Mexico, there's a woman impersonating a nun who's a drug mule and there are FBI agents waiting her arrest when she gets to the airport. If she safely makes it to the ground, the woman is going to be locked up. Lots of plots, lots of things going on here. No, too many things going on here. It is really hard to focus on Frank Malone stopping the terrorist because every time I'm turning this page, I'm terrified that there's a new name I have to learn and write down that has some, you know, a soap star that's on one plane, a UN diplomat that needs to broker an important political situation, a Russian grandma who's defecting. I can't tell you how many subplots come bubbling up that don't really have any other payoff other than you're just watching these people respond to a crisis that they can do nothing about but count down the seconds. It's the opposite of an action book. It's a reaction book. And so the screenwriters got their work cut out for them. I definitely lost my patience with 58 Minutes. Beyond the fact that the cast of characters is really cluttered, I also just don't think they're very well written or that compelling. Like I said, Frank Malone is such a generic hero. We're rooting for him because, well, we've been told he's the star, but not because there's anything really interesting about him. And Wager feels he has to contrive this love story that in the middle of all of this, he runs into a girl he slept with in college who he hasn't seen, and she's now one of the security people in the air traffic control tower, and he thinks maybe she's a spy or maybe I should date her. I'm not kidding. Like, these are the kinds of things you're worrying about when you have less than an hour for your daughter to go splattering on the ground? No, this just doesn't belong here, but they have so many contrived relationships. Silly moments. I think my least favorite might be the fact that Willie Staub, the main terrorist, he's farmed out all the work. There's a guy that's over at a warehouse that's sending the jamming signal. There's some other guys that are shutting down the other airports in the New York area. They have this whole task force. What's he doing? He's wearing a priest outfit and walking around the airport to see if the demands are being met. And he happens to run into another priest who asks what parish he's with and he says, oh, I'm from Oregon. And he says, I am too, and realizes he has to kill the guy, that his alias has been blown by this random priest from Oregon who's sniffing him out as a phony. And Frank, of course, gets word that there's a dead body in the bathroom stall and that's really how he catches the bad guy. That's how they make Frank the hero in this situation. Because most of the work, I'll be honest with you, is techie work. It's people getting into helicopters and unjamming the signals. There's not a lot for football star, super cop marksman Frank Malone to really do here. I think that was kind of true in the movie. You know, you can go listen to that show and hear my thoughts on Die Hard 2, but the problem is way compounded here on the page. 
it all comes down to one shootout in a warehouse and Willie Staub's identity getting blown and him getting shot and killed. And then everything's solved by a magical string of coincidences that Prince Omar, son of the rich Middle Eastern ruler, happens to know the man that employed Willie Staub and is going to prevent him from ever entering America again and doing more terror. And the babushka from Russia gets to meet the New York senator who's political career is riding on the fact that she get in safe. A tapestry of melodrama I was never invested in. I, you know, they did the best they could with this. This would not be a good standalone movie. Whatever I think about Die Hard 2, what they've done and extracted from here to put into that movie is better than what's on the page. I've got to say, ultimately, unlike Nothing Lasts Forever, I don't think this book is a good companion to the movie. I think you should skip it and just stick with the screen. There's a reason why Wager didn't write more Frank Malone adventures and why they never made the character into a movie. And that's because this is just generic. And the best thing about it is the concept. The whole idea of taking over an airport in America during a snowstorm. That's all this has to offer. And frankly, it's not enough. And with that, we've reached the end of our series. Thanks for joining me for the past three weeks as we looked at all the novels that inspired Die Hard movies. But from this point forward, Die Hard movies took inspiration still from written media, but not from novels. So that's the rule. No novel, no show. Die Hard 3, it took its inspiration from an original screenplay, and Die Hard 4 was based on nonfiction. So we're not going to cover that here at Books and Nachos. Much shorter than the Ian Fleming. (laughs) I didn't need Brock to come in here and help me out with the workload this time. So for the moment, I bid you adieu and ask that you keep reading and keep listening to NowPlayingPodcast.com and Books and Nachos and all our Vinganza Media shows. I promise to return when we are dealing with a movie series that has some literary novel origins. And to give you a hint, that will be in the spring 2012 donation series, the one with the zombies. So, you know, stay tuned. I'm not going too far away, but for the moment, I bid you fond farewell and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved.